this letter is just remarkable as I'm going to read it out in full from uh, Francis McGreevy in Swords. Sir, I find it quite unbelievable that at a time when the world is drenched with violence, one should criticise the National Song Contest because of the emphasis on love. As I watched the song contest, this was the one thing which impressed me, the fact that love was the theme for most of the entries. And surely this is what is required today, love. A love of our fellow man, a love so strong that it will stretch out and embrace all the world in its arms, and destroy forever the hatreds and animosities with which this world is scourged. Are we still talking about Graham Souness? I believe the game is a thinking game. Sit down and take it easy. Maybe a bit volatile. Hello and welcome back to Back to Jack, where we're walking through the glory days of Irish international football, the Jack Charlton era, match by match by match. If you missed episode one, we covered the extraordinary Marion Square shenanigans which saw Jack appointed, as well as the underwhelming defeat to Wales in Jack's first game in charge. And we also touched on some of the sights and sounds of Ireland in 1986. This episode will revolve around the Ireland versus Uruguay game, Jack's second in charge, which took place on April 23rd, 1986. As ever, I'm joined by Dublin Live's Dave Donnelly and filmmaker and producer John Breslin. So after Jack's shock appointment, uh, the public and the media are getting to, to know him or getting to know a bit more about him. And he gives quite a revealing interview to the Sunday Independent. Um, and he talks about his hard scrabble childhood in Ashington. And we also learn that he hates the Westbury Hotel. Um, any other takeaways from that kind of Jack's first big encounter with an Irish newspaper for you guys? Well, you'll recall that um, George Best had, had a lot to say about his appointment and Jack took his time in this interview with, with Tom O'Dea to to pop back at uh, at George Best. Did, do, do you know what that was born out of, that whole thing? I mean, in that interview he said about Best that uh, he was a magnificent player, but you know he's not one of the all-time greats because he didn't play for long enough. Um, but yeah, what's going on between between George Best and Jack? I'm I'm not quite sure where that enmity arose from. I suspect it could have been something that just followed them off the field. Um, Best was always very critical of players like Jack, who he thought were purely destructive. He would have been kicked up and down the field by quite a few people like Jack. But, you know, Best was a pretty volatile figure. He was pretty lost at this stage. I wouldn't take it to heart too much, but Jack seems to have, and he seems to have... um, he, as you say, he referred back to it in that interview and it does seem to have rankled with him a little bit. But Jack's actually very quickly plunged into another controversy when the initial squad for the Uruguay game is leaked to the, pre- to the press and Liam Brady isn't in it. So a whole host of players from the previous squad are absent. Um, the likes of Brady, Ronnie Whelan, Jerry Payton, Mick McCarthy, Pat Byrne, Dave Langan, Michael Robinson... Tony Cascarino, who Jack doesn't seem to rate at all, um, but had already had his debut on their own hand. Uh, so this causes a bit of a, a ruckus. Now, Jack's explanation is that he's just rotating the squad. He wants to give everyone a chance to, to show them show him what they can do. do. Do you guys buy that? I actually think he... I'm a bit sympathetic towards him there, because I think he 
from the looks of the panel and certainly from the looks of the, the team that, that plays against Uruguay, as we'll see later, he seems to have made an effort to really, to really cast his net wide. There's, um, you know, a, a few players are retained from the first game, but it's very much a case that he wants to see what uh, what's at his disposal. And um, yeah, it, it looks like he was doing a bit of experimentation in, the, in those days, which I... I suppose he'd have to do considering he, he wouldn't have known an awful lot of the players or he wouldn't have known certainly the Irish based players at the time. He's left uh, Ronnie Whelan out and he's included Sheedy even though Sheedy was injured um, and they would have been the two I think left, left-sided left players. There was a couple of reports that said uh, it's the first time that Brady's been left out you know even though the idea wasn't really to, to leave him out as such you know is to test other players as you said and Mick McCarthy uh, also left out of the squad like the last one even though he started the last one in centre half and spoiler he started this one at centre half as well I suppose it goes to show the mindset a little bit that um, there's compared to today you know there were so few internationals back then that really really every game was a big game and the, the idea of maybe having a having an experimental squad every couple of uh, friendly windows really wasn't really wasn't a done thing at the time whatever the rationale it was certainly noteworthy that, that Brady was left out of the squad um, as you say, he, he was a little bit irked by this, but he does note that he might not have been available for the game anyway, because Inter are preparing for the second leg of their UEFA Cup semi-final um, against Real Madrid. They're leading from the first leg. They're leading 3-1. Now, as it turns out, they don't ultimately make the final. Uh, they lose the second leg 5-1 after extra time um, at the Bernabeu. Uh, Brady scores the penalty to bring it to extra time, but uh, yeah, he would have been, as it turns out, entirely free for this, for this particular game. I'm not sure if, if either you know, but what, what exactly would the mechanism for a, a squad leaking in advance be? Because as, as far as I know, the um, a full list wouldn't actually be be issued to the different clubs or whatever like that. It would be. Each club will be told uh, what player was required and it'd be quite difficult to put it together unless either Jack or somebody in the FAI actively shared it. Yeah, I'd say what happened was Jack um, decided on the squad and notified the FAI. Now, we know that one of kind of own hands' big complaints was that he, he had to do all that admin work himself, basically. He had to call around all the clubs to let them know he wanted their players. Um, and often he would have to do that from like a secretary's office at a the ground in England where he was watching the game because the FBI's offices closed at the weekend. So, so yeah, it was all left up to him. But as we can see, it's still it's still a pretty imperfect process because, as John said, um, Sheedy's included in the squad even though he's no, known to be injured. We might just run through the squad, actually. So the goalkeepers are Bonner and O'Neill of Dundalk. The defenders, Anderson, Beglin, Hewton and O'Leary. The midfielders, McGrath, Houghton, Galvin, O'Callaghan. Mick Kennedy on his first call-up. Um, Daly, Liam O'Brien from Shamrock Rovers, who we'll talk about in a bit. Sheedy, who we know was injured. Um, and up top, Aldridge, Stapleton and Burns. So there's only, actually only four defenders in that squad, if you don't count McGrath, who, as we know, Jack sees a, as a midfielder. Yeah, it's about it. The, the other thing that I kind of say is that it looks like Maybe maybe I'm talking with 2022 uh, goggles on again, but it it looks like quite a small squad and one that would be if you did get four or five injuries, it would be it would quickly become a case where you need to make an awful lot of calls to to get players in. As did become the case. So we might just talk a little bit about Ireland's opponents for this game. Obviously, it's not a do or die game or or anything like it, but it's still. 
quite a prestigious opponent. Um, Uruguay were the champions of South America. They'd won an incredibly convoluted um, 1983 Copa America. which had a, a very strange format, but they were the champions of South America. Um, and so does anyone want to, to talk a little bit about the calibre of opponent that Ireland are going to be facing? I saw a great quote from the, the 1966 manager of Uruguay, Andina uh, Vieira. Some countries have their history. Uruguay has its football. Wonderfully romantic, I thought. Well, what, what I think looks really good, well, I just think it looks really nice and it, it's, it harks back to a nice time is that there was only three... Only three players not based in South America in um in the squad as far as I can see. Maybe I maybe I need to double check that. But um it it's overwhelmingly either home based or based in some of the bigger South American clubs. So it, I I think it's it harks back to a nice time when uh players tended to stay uh, close to home and play for their play for their local clubs. The big figure, the big character, um, is obviously Enzo Francescoli. Uh, he's kind of Uruguay's um most heralded player of, of that era, probably still is to this day. And kind of the Irish media goes goes big on him as a, as a threat and as, a, as an attraction for this game. Um, as it turns out, he doesn't actually line out. The Uruguayan team that we will talk about later is a little bit, shall we say, experimental, um, as is Ireland. Peñarol, uh, which for the starting eleven actually ended up coming from the Uruguayan club, uh, like so many South American clubs, they've got loads of different sports going on. They've got a you know a, a hefty cycling, basketball, beach soccer, futsal, and sorry, Terlock, but they've a rugby team as well. Um, that club went on to win the the kind of the Copa Libertadores uh, the next year in eighty seven as well. So it's a high caliber of player, um, because four of that Peñarol team ended up in the starting eleven. Yeah, that's you know a team that's headed to headed to the World Cup. It, it it's a big game and probably the first big big test of of uh, Jack's era. Third favourites for that World Cup as well that was coming up in just a few months. So obviously we'll be returning to the match itself and and those star attractions of the Uruguayan team later in the episode. But before that, we should just make mention of yet another early controversy that Jack finds himself at the centre of. So you might recall, as we mentioned in the last episode, that Liam Tuhi. The, who was a contender for, for the job and also the Ireland Youth Setup Manager. Uh, he quit shortly after Jack's arrival, after Jack came into the dressing room at Elland Road during a game against England and kind of started taking charge of the tactics and actively undermining him, too, he felt. Now, to his two assistants, Brian Kerr and, and Noel O'Reilly, who I'm sure most people who have any kind of memory of Irish football over the past 20 years to be familiar with, um, they stayed on for the subsequent game, which was a, a 3-1 win over Northern Ireland on April 8th in Cork. But then they quit. Um, Jack asked them to stay on, but they told him they were loyal to Tuhi. They were moving on, that he'd have to make alternative arrangements. Yeah, it's no, it's absolutely no surprise that um, Kerr and uh, Nola Riley would follow uh Tui and fallen under under collective sword, I suppose, because the, I suppose it's a it's a feature of them that we'll 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 find out in subsequent years. It was generally regarded as a kind of a, a tragedy, and just the general feeling was that it was a bit of a gutting event. Um, O'Reilly and Kerr, you you two might know a bit more than me. Like, was it? Even though you know it's the start of Jack's era. We're not going to kind of foreshadow stuff too much, but 
Um, I think this is definitely somewhere where you could point the finger at Jack in terms of like the, the youth teams, let's say, won't particularly flourish over Jack Charlton's period in charge. Um, they seem to be something of an afterthought. Tuhi Karen O'Reilly had an incredibly good record over the past kind of five, six years, what they've done with the youth teams. So it is a shame that those two parts of the of the of the mechanism couldn't work in concert, but I guess Jack was just kind of laser focused on, on the senior team to the exclusion of everything else. I think there's kind of a corollary there, not to not to hark back to modern times too much, but maybe the um I guess the excitement that was generated under Stephen Kenny when he took over the twenty ones a couple of years ago because uh, you know, really, in essence, uh, I don't think Irish football at the time was really ever used to a huge amount of success or used used to a huge amount of promise. And that under twenty one team was hugely successful in the in the limited number of games that they played, and they, it really did seem like something was building. And I suppose you can make a corollary as well between uh between Kerr's period in charge uh, period in charge with the underage teams as well. Uh, certainly, there's there, there's been periods when uh. When excitement has really been building, and it's good to see that uh, we we haven't always made the same mistakes. So Jack puts uh, Morris Setters in in place there instead, which is someone who's not going to be in Ireland or has any really knowledge of the Irish youth setup, right? Well, first and foremost, Jack says like he he claims to have a mystery man watching domestic football for him, <laughs> but he also when he's kind of pressed about this issue of who's going to be his his number two, and the media really want an Irish based one. He, he just says quite belligerently, who says you need an assistant? It's not Jack's greatest legacy, really, his impact on the youth international setup or indeed on the League of Ireland, even though in this case there is kind of a star League of Ireland player in the squad. And that player is unemployed gas fitter Liam O'Brien playing for Shamrock Rovers. Um, Jack has never seen him in action, but he's heard very good things about him. Uh, he is one of the top players in the league. He's being watched by a lot of big English clubs. And just days before this game took place, he's actually clinched, Rovers have clinched their third domestic title in a row uh, with a 4-0 win over Cork City. Pretty modest attendance at that game. This is Rovers' most successful period in their history, really, or certainly in their modern history. But there's barely 2,000 people at that game. Um, it could be that, not that we want to do this too often, but to quote Donald Trump, that, that Rovers fans are, are tired of winning. Um, but maybe they're saving up for the cup final or their shot at the double on the Sunday after the Ireland game, uh, which is going to take place at Daly Mount Park after it was passed by the Dublin Corporation and, and the Fire Brigade. The FEI are already kind of signalling that Daly Mount's international days are over, but it does have a few cup finals left in it yet i think we, we we won't make like jack and entirely neglect the domestic game so this is kind of pretty much the end of the league of ireland season the 85 86 season which was the first season that we had two divisions in ireland um rovers obviously won the title have just clinched it galway united finished second which was their best ever finish remains their best ever finish um with shells and ucd relegated uh it's also kind of very notable for being Derry city's first season in the league they brought absolutely massive attendances home and away, bigger than a lot of attendances in Division Two in England at the time, because um, this wasn't a great period for the reputation of the game and the attendances were kind of lagging a bit uh, across the channel. Despite all that support, Derry didn't manage to win promotion. They were pipped by Bray and Sligo, but they did win the League of Ireland Shield, uh, first division competition. They brought 12,000 fans to the second leg at the showgrounds where they won 3-1 uh, 
uh, against Longford with an Owen the Gamma hat-trick, 6-1 on aggregate. So yeah, extraordinary levels of, of support for a new entrant to the league. Um, incredible excitement around that team. Um, but also, Dave, as a connoisseur of kind of Leinster Senior Cup chicanery, you like this. <laughs> on the night that the second leg of the final was played, there was also a refixed group stage gameplay, which was obviously completely redundant and pointless. <laughs> uh, but Newcastle United of, of Limerick, future Newcastle West, uh, played EMFA Kilkenny City in a group stage game on the same day as the final. Um, but yeah, the the kind of the, the big finger pointing going around about the domestic game in this particular week was the, the very unsavoury scenes that had been seen at the second leg of the cup semi-final between Pats and Waterford. So there was quite a lot of trouble at uh, Richmond Park. It was genuinely pretty shocking and violent stuff. Um, it was probably the high, well, not the right term, but it was probably the most extreme violence that was seen um, outside of a few Bowes Rovers games and obviously a few European games um, in Ireland in, in, during this period. Um, but now we've dealt with the, the kind of the hooliganism issue, we might as well cover some of the heavier stuff that was going on in the news at the time. So one such was the kidnapping of Jennifer Guinness, wife of banker John Henry Guinness from their luxury home in Hoth. So this kind of preoccupied the media for a few days and we might just give you a little bit of a little bit of a capsule review of how that went down. For the rest of her life, Mrs Guinness will remember Tuesday, April the 8th last as the Day of the Jackal. For, as she entered her house, three armed men forced their way in after her. The rest is history. The arrest of Kelly, the release of Mrs Guinness after a night-long siege, and the surrender of the Cunninghams. During her captivity, Mrs Guinness contacted her brother George in London. When it was all over, a suitcase containing £300,000 sterling was spotted going back out through Dublin Airport. The other big front page news was the Fine Gael Labour government's proposal to bring forward a referendum on divorce, which was still totally illegal uh, in Ireland at this stage. Now, of course, many people, particularly women's groups, had been campaigning for divorce for years. So I'm sure we're all astounded at the idea of a, a Fine Gael jump government leaping on a progressive movement when they think that the tide is turning. Uh, nothing like that will ever happen again. But we'll follow that one with interest, I'm sure. Considering I was born about four weeks before before this uh, this came up, I, I was just wondering if it's a coincidence or not. <laughs> a big player in that as well is the the kind of uh, the possibility of the Pope coming back for. Um, Another big gig in Ireland. It's front page news that it's being denied uh, by the Vatican. Pretty exciting stuff. It's like it's like he's a rock star. It's just speculation that he'll be there for the opening of Knock Airport. Um, but that's also kind of playing a bit of a factor in. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm reading into it too much, but it was kind of like, oh, we might we'll have to get the Pope over here to tell you how to vote in that referendum. Perhaps he was planning to come over and play five times. <laughs> um. Just another quick item of showbiz news, I guess. Uh, movie star Clint Eastwood has just been elected mayor of Carmel by the Sea, or Carmel by the Sea, I think they pronounce it, in California. So the Dirty Harry star was elected in a landslide against incumbent Charlotte Townsend, who um, I think largely so he could issue his own planning permission. That was that was the problem there. There will it, Irish football followers will know that there'll be better news for the Townsend family later in the decade, but... Anyway, while Clint is still, as of today, still churning out movies um, in his dotage, 
Charlotte Townsend is still an elected official in Carmel at the age of 96. Wow, she got back in because he, he was only in for two years there. He brought back ice cream cones. Um, and there was there was a worry in the... Yeah, seriously. And he, brought, he opened more public toilets. The worry was that he would uh, be bringing more, uh, more condos and more tourism to this uh, little kind of Californian hamlet that was um, mainly kind of a small place for artists to retreat to and stuff like that. But uh, he went in and much like Jack, he fired four of the planning committee members that uh, had voted against him and uh, started Im- imposing his will. I suppose this is right at the the height of Reagan Reagan mania as well. So maybe he was uh, maybe he had other designs and he he didn't want to upset the uh, his constituents too much. Reagan was one of the many Republican presidents that he kind of endorsed as well. Although never claiming to be um, either Republican or, or Democrat, he was a libertarian apparently. But uh, yeah, I think he backed about five U.S. Uh, Republican candidates. What's that saying? If somebody says that they're they're neither right nor left wing, that that's an admission that they're definitely right wing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just to keep with, I guess, show business of, of the period, I should explain to kind of younger listeners that the news cycle and the showbiz kind of churn was a lot slower in those days. So our previous game was a month ago and things haven't changed dramatically since then. Uh, Cliff Richard is still number one with the, with the young ones in Ireland. Um, but Rock Me Amadeus by Falco is beginning to rocket up the charts. Classic tune. There you go. Is uh, is Rocky IV still in the cinema? It absolutely is, yeah. yeah. Never left it, Dave. <laughs> Jim McCann actually is, is at number 17 with, with his version of Grace, the, the Irish ballad. With all my love I'll place this wedding ring upon your finger There won't be time to share our love the Irish charts were kind of strange in this period in that they were kind of like the British charts, but just with these random intrusions of like folk music and <laughs> Republican ballads into them as well. Uh, that was my kind of abiding memory of them back in the, the day. It was a bit disorienting. And Stockton's Wing, of course, which I'm sure both of you have been listening to a lot over the last few weeks. I... I won't pretend that I have, but I do have so many miles stuck in my head. Um, so thanks for that. I hope you haven't been fielding any any uh, angry calls from Stockton's wing fanatics after your trashing of them. One friend is actually his his main bit of feedback uh, when I sent him the last episode was that's an absolute banger. What are you talking about? So there you go. One man's trash. <laughs> As well, one of the songs that was already kind of plummeting down, down the charts was David Bowie's Absolute Beginners, which is, for what it is, quite a good song, but certainly far better remembered than the, the movie it came from, which was just about to be released. Uh, wouldn't make a huge impression. Patsy Kenseth's first big role, uh, Julian Temple's Absolute Beginners, David Bowie's in it as well. 
very kind of late in the day to be trying to launch a kind of blockbuster musical um, and it predictably flopped. There were rumours it would bring the British film industry down with it. So yeah, no, nothing nothing hugely electrifying in, well, a few good songs in the charts, but nothing hugely electrifying pop culture wise ahead of this game. Uh, and again, no, not much point in rehashing TV and movies because they were, it was a Wednesday, they were exactly the same as a month ago. Um, as were the cinema listings, although Dogtownian and the Muska Hounds was on BBC Two that afternoon, which was a show I really liked when I was a kid. Might be possibly before your time. It is worth just bringing up a major TV event on the other side of the pond. Uh, you guys ever heard of Geraldo Rivera's live two-hour special, The Mystery of Al Capone's Vaults? No, I have not. I've heard of Geraldo Rivera. I'm Geraldo Rivera, and you're about to witness a live television event. A massive concrete vault has been discovered. Some think it belonged to none other than the notorious Al Capone. Well, tonight, for the first time, that vault is going to be open live. Live from the Windy City, Chicago, Illinois, a worldwide two-hour television event from Al Capone's former headquarters in the Lexington Hotel. Tribune Entertainment and the Westgate Group are proud to present The Mystery of Al Capone's Vault. After two hours, once they'd broken through, it quickly became apparent there was nothing in the vault. <laughs> it's remembered as one of the kind of biggest letdowns of all time, but it is remembered. Uh, and that's important in, in television. I've actually watched most of it. It's on YouTube. It's pretty interesting in that, like, they obviously there's only so long you can actually, or so much of people drilling through walls you can actually televise. So all the filler stuff is really good. It's it's kind of contemporaries of Al Capone being interviewed and giving their memories of, of him and his operation. Uh, so yeah, that was notable enough even to be reported on this side of the Atlantic. Did it have an exciting moment where the wall was kind of finally breached? Was it like, oh, let's see what's in there and then huge disappointment? It did, but I think they also kept drilling after that point <laughs> just in case there was a hidden vault within the vault. We're going to have to push the news back tonight, guys. We're going to continue <laughs> looking for the treasure. <laughs> yeah, remember to this day is one of the great letdowns. But I had massive viewing figures. Um including on the West Coast after people knew there was nothing in the vault. <laughs> so just the, just the power of, of kind of the, the smaller television landscape of the time. Seems, at least up to now, that we've struck out with the vault. I'm disappointed about that, as I'm sure you are. Um, so um, what can I say? I'm sorry. I would thank my buddies here for doing the job. Uh, thank you for watching. I promised all the critics that if we didn't find anything, I'd sing a song. So... Uh, uh, Chicago, Chicago, that Holland town. All right, I'm going. I'll see you. Good night. I'm sorry. Incidentally, Al Capone has a grandniece called Deirdre Capone, which I just find very funny for some, some, for some reason. Um, just to emphasize how long ago this was, uh, on the, the night that this game was played, the, the Duchess of Windsor was on her, her deathbed, better remembered as Mrs. Simpson, um, the woman who, who forced the, the king of England, and in fact Ireland at that time, um, to abdicate because uh, he wanted to marry a, a divorcee. She was 89 years old when she she passed away the day after our, our game. So we are talking about a, a very different era. As we said, football is, isn't is the, at this time, the star attraction that it is now. Um, it was really sharing space with snooker, which was really the, the, the glam, <laughs> glamorous is the wrong word, but the, the sport du jour 
um, and massively popular. This was the year after the, the famous black ball final between Dennis Taylor and, and Steve Davis. This is really unbelievable. He's done it. Dennis Taylor, for the first time, becomes Embassy World Snooker Champion 1985. As this game is played, the, the World Snooker Championship is ongoing. Uh, and Taylor has been knocked out already in the first round. Uh, the Crucible Curse strikes again. It was Stephen Hendry's debut in, in that World Championship and he played Willie Thorne in his first match, uh, eventually got knocked out. But um, it was noted uh, that Willie Thorne was playing without the support of his best friend, Gary Lineker, who was <laughs> yeah, playing football at the time, so couldn't be, couldn't be watching. But it was still news that Gary wasn't there watching him beat Steve Hendry in the first round of the World Championship. Gary Lineker was Willie Thorne's best man the previous year at his wedding. Was Kevin Sheedy there? He was injured, but he was still there. <laughs> Fairly significant Irish interest in that competition. Um, Eugene Hughes did survive into the second round, but one of Ireland's competitors in the qualifiers for the World Snooker Championship that year was Paul Watchorn. He's a folk singer now, quite a well-known one. Uh, his brother Patsy was in the Dubliners, but er- earlier in April, Ireland had won the Snooker World Cup, uh, the Ireland A team. Ireland was so good, I had two teams in the competition. Um, the Ireland A-team of Alex Higgins, Dennis Taylor and Eugene Hughes beat Canada in the final. Uh, I'm surprised that wasn't a bigger deal in the Irish media given the, the profile of the game. Um, but this wasn't the World Cup at which Higgins threatened to have Taylor shot by the UBF and that was a subsequent one. Uh, so that did sour their relationship slightly. Okay, so speaking of kind of sectarian inflected nastiness, <laughs> The kind of, one of the big football stories is that Graeme Sinness has been appointed player manager of Rangers. The, I was going to say Liverpool legend. I'm not sure legend is, is quite the word, um, but it's something not too far off. Uh, for younger, <laughs> for, uh, for younger listeners, player manager was a thing that used to happen quite a bit at this time. Um, at one point, Jan, Johnny Giles was managing player managing both West Brom and Ireland which is just mind-boggling today, and it seems to have more or less completely died out as a a phenomenon. Suness has pledged to break with Rangers' long-standing Protestants-only policy, and there's some suggestion that Liam Brady might be the first Catholic to to don the royal blue. What do we think of that? I'd say he probably wasn't informed about it again. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. There's loads of, there's rumours aplenty of where Brady's going to go. He's flown to Leeds to meet his uh, agent. Uh, There's four English clubs after him. He could go to France was another suggestion because he's bought a gaff in Monaco. Um, He ended up staying in Italy. He must have dreaded picking up the papers in the morning at this point just to find out what's happening in his life next. As as we now know, it will be a few years before Rangers do finally take the plunge and sign up a player of the Catholic faith, which they do in the most inflammatory way possible. But some sign of glacial progress here. Who is that? The blue half of Glasgow. Uh, they go for Mo Johnson in the end after he'd agreed to re-sign for Celtic, which is pretty explosive. I think Alex Stevenson, the, the Ireland international, had played for them. My father remembered him because the family had a shop in East Wall and he used to come back in the summer and, and work there. Alan Smith, who, who was at Cork City a couple of years ago, was on their books, but he never played for either, I don't think. 
Richie Sadler fam- famously, of course, was was a Rangers fan during this period and used to go around in Rangers gear. Um, I think by his own admission, mostly to piss people off. But it certainly would have had that effect in in eighties Dublin. I, I still, at the same time, I think there might have been more dangerous places to walk around in a Rangers top than Ballantyre. So, Rangers not involved in the latter stages of of Europe this season. But the European Cup semi finals took place just before this game. Um, back in the day when it was still kind of a knockout cha- competition with champions only. One game was Anderlecht versus Stawa Bucharest. Anderlecht won the first leg. 1-0, Stauer won 3-0 in the second to progress to the final. And then there was a, a rollicking tie um, in the second semi, IFK Gothenburg against Barcelona. 3-0 in Gothenburg, 3-0 to Barcelona in Barcelona, went to penalties, Barcelona won 5-4. Um, very notable, like unimaginable pretty much today that, that three of the four European semi-finalists will be from Belgium, Romania and Sweden. Yeah, it's a, it's a different era. I guess it ties in with what we were saying about the uh, the locations of the Euro, Uruguay squad. Well, there was a couple at the at maybe the big the big Spanish teams and and maybe the big French teams. But for the most part, it, it was an era where Ireland accepted. Um, I suppose most of the the best players in their particular country would would play their football there as well. We'll drag ourselves back from the exalted um, and rarefied environment of camp now back to a damp and barely half full Lansdowne Road for this game. And um, there has been, since we since we introduced the squad at the top of the episode, it has changed radically. Uh, usual bunch of, of pullouts and various players who dropped out of the squad, various players brought in to replace them. Mick McCarthy is back in. I'm not sure why Jack doesn't seem to have fancied Mick McCarthy in these early few games. And um, I do wonder... Did it have something to do with what happened before Owen Hand's last game against Denmark when the journalist's subsequent charity personality, let's say, uh, John O'Shea, who people may remember from, from the Gold Charity, he was a journalist at this time, and he'd been constantly niggling Owen Hand about Mick McCarthy not being international class and being too slow. And he publicly offered to race McCarthy um, over 100 yards and Owen Hand said yeah fair enough not expecting that he'd turn up to training which is exactly what happened um, Owen Hand told Mick McCarthy to to participate in this race which he obviously won easily John O'Shea pulled up with an alleged hamstring strain halfway through but then the following day I think Mick McCarthy did his groin or something and obviously that didn't reflect particularly well on you know why was he doing a sprint challenge 24 hours before an international match. I don't know if that fact factored in Jack's thinking that he didn't like players who were in any way to beholden to the media, I think. So I don't know if that was why Mick wasn't in the initial squad, but he's back in now. Uh, alongside another centre-half, Barry Murphy of Bohemians, um, who is, I think, a gas converter. I think every player in the League of Ireland had some trade involving gas at this time. And just before... The night before the game, Peter Eccles also gets called into the squad, uh, the Rovers player. So that's that's a hell of an elevation um, to international honours. But we, we might as well talk through the the team that lines out in the end. So it's Bonner, Langan, Murphy of Bowes, McCarthy, Hewton, Houghton, O'Brien, Daly, Galvin, Aldridge and Stapleton. So, yeah, what, what, what do we think of that as, as a side to go up against the champions of South America? It's certainly not an established team. I think uh, there's a lot of new new combinations in there. I know there's a 
plenty would have played together a lot uh, on their own hand as well. But uh, Aldridge and Stapleton up front, I think, is probably the one that everybody's going to be looking at because uh, we were denied it against Wales uh, a month previous. Yeah, a few few dropouts of players who had played the previous weekend as well. Lawrence and Begland played for Liverpool. McGrath played for United, but none of them um, played midweek. So that's why I think Eccles came in. He's a centre half, last minute into the squad, and Murphy pairing with McCarthy, centre half. Uh, I should say as well that the three Oxford United starters for for Ireland, Langenhouten and Aldridge, had just I think the the weekend previously just won the League Cup at Wembley. Uh, the Milk Cup, as it was called then, um, sponsored by the Milk Marketing Board. They beat in QPR, uh, who had Ireland internationals John Byrne and um, Michael Robinson in their side in front of 90,000 fans. And Ray Houghton was, was one of the scorers in a, a 3 0 win. And this time he's got Houghton on his way. And Hebert making the run. Beautiful piece of running by Trevor Hebert. He's got Aldridge waiting in the middle. He's got Houghton! They were coming into this game on a high, but they were in for a bit of a shock in terms of the, I guess, the relative atmosphere of a of a sun-kissed spring afternoon at Wembley in front of 90,000. The, the crowd for this game was reported as 14,000. Some say it was more like 20,000. The tickets ranged from about £4 to £8. £8 would have been, certainly for anyone I knew, would have been pricey enough in, in 1986. It was basically the same range as that year's Panto at the Gaiety which was Sleeping Beauty with Brendan Grace, Eamon Morrissey and Ronnie Drew. Uh, I don't know if any of them were Sleeping Beauty, but that would have set you back similar. But to give maybe a, a, a more telling comparison, the, the McGuigan versus Cabrera world title fight at the RDS in January, it was £150 for a ringside seat. They were selling for about 400 which was a wow. phenomenal amount of money. Um, in in recessionary Ireland of, of 1986. And £189 would have got you two nights in a three-star hotel and a ticket to the FA Cup uh, as well as all your travel there which is obviously a lot but you're getting a fair bit for that How much was the, the, the Rocky Four Back to the Future double header? For the double header I'd say you'd have been paying four quid maybe so yeah as, as we said the, the Uruguay team they had actually just played Wales on the Monday night so you know this was this was a, a pretty intensive turf for them um, they, they'd made several changes from that side their star player, Francescoli, is not in the 11 to take on Ireland. Probably to, for anyone who did pay their eight quid in specifically to see Uruguay, um, might have been disappointed in that. This is, I think, a pretty, not quite second string, but of this of the team they, that lines out at Lansdowne Road, only five of them are going to start in, in Uruguay's um, opener in the World Cup. So it's not their full strength. 11, but it is, should still be more than strong enough a team to give Ireland a serious run for their money. We're, we're hopeful that Uruguay are wearing the correct studs for this game because at the previous game against Wales, they were forced to change them. They were too long and I think too sharp. So God knows what diabolical plans they had before the referee stepped in for that one. And um, this was a really volatile Uruguayan team as well. I don't know if you've seen, I think we, we've all seen footage from the game they played against Mexico in, in LA on, on the 13th of April. That just degenerated into running kicks. It's just great brawl footage. Some of it's quite slowed down and there's some sort of kind of disco soul track to it in that particular YouTube clip. Which just makes it almost like choreographed. But it's that, you know the way they used to celebrate in those days, the kind of 
jump ups. You know, there's obviously no knee slides or anything like that, but you've got these kind of, you're just jumping into midair yourself with your hand in the air. The kind of brawls were kind of like that, the way the flying kicks would go in, just kind of like talking about jumping, leaving your leg out. But there was a few thumps, there was a few landed slaps in that uh, in that brawl. It was still an era when quite a lot was accepted on the pitch. I mean, Graham Souness, obviously, but... Uh... You know the, the battle of Bilbao where Maradona got a few kicks. But anyway, that's the that's the opponents that Ireland are girding their loins to face. Guys, do you want to to talk us through the game itself? The referee is John Martin from England, who was pushing fifty at this point, but would still be refereeing well into the Premier League era, which again is kind of unimaginable now. So yeah, will we just will we just give a rundown of of the events of the first half? Yeah, I can take us through the the first little while, I suppose. Houghton had a. Had a 25-yard free kick go just wide early on. Uh, Ramos then drew drew Bonner into the first save. And amazingly, well, maybe not, not too amazingly, but uh, Mick McCarthy had a free kick pushed wide uh, early on in the game. Um, do do you have any recollection of uh, Mick McCarthy as a, as a set-piece specialist? I do remember him almost scoring from with a free kick from 50 yards in a game against England, the European Championship qualifier, but that was just because the, the ball got caught in the wind and uh, kind of, yeah, it was it was from inside his own half. It beat Chris Woods and it kind of clipped the top of the bar, but I don't remember. He was famous for his throw-ins, of course, but um, other than that, I don't remember him taking a set piece. And the the first big, big blow of the game, I suppose, is delivered uh, right in the in the midpoint of the first half. Uh, Daly is, uh, is penalised for a foul on Cabrera about, 20, 25 yards out. The surviving footage of the game from Rai in Italy is perhaps not the greatest angle to judge. A 20 to 25 yard free kick from, from Paz deflects off McCarthy and into the goal. So he he, he did get his free kick goal uh, at the end of the day, maybe not in the way he would have wanted. It was agonisingly slow the way it kind of dribbled over the line because Packy Banner had gone the other, the wrong, other way, right? And then the deflection threw him and he just couldn't manage to get across to it. It was a very drab goal. It might be a function of the footage and where it's taken from, but I'm I'm known for being harsh on goalkeepers, so I'm going to live up to that. I, th- I think Bonner could recover quicker here. The shots kind of deflects off McCarthy and kind of dribbles into the middle of the goal. Um, Bonner does get up and manage to kind of claw towards it, but um, it, it drops past him into the into the centre of the netting. Uh, I think he could probably have got there if he'd been a bit a bit livelier to the the danger and i don't i don't think bonner would have been a thousand percent safe in the shirt at this point because uh jerry payton was obviously brought in from the cold for the for the wales game and um, there is a bit of a uh, experimentation in be- in behind them as well with alan o'neill of uh dundalk the very the very experienced league of ireland goalkeeper at the time so you know um maybe on the other hand bonner was uh feeling a bit nervous after the game yeah very true bonner was what 26 at that point and it was only his eighth or ninth cap so yeah, as you said, definitely not nailed on for that position. Seamus McDonough had been the keeper for most of most of that own hands period in charge. So yeah, he was he was by no means the first choice. So uh, yeah, he would have been disappointed to have conceded uh, in this, as we say, early kind of showcase in front of Jack Charlton. But that wasn't the end of the action, or indeed the end of the goal scoring for the first half, was it, Dave? Well, I suppose, I suppose lucky for him then, uh, for the remainder of the first half anyway, wouldn't have a... Um, too much more to face. 
shortly afterwards, along uh, as as we alluded to earlier, along a long throw from Mick McCarthy, which would very much become his uh, an iconic image of him uh, over over the, the remainder of his career. It's uh, thrown from the right, like glanced the post as it was as it was headed goalwards by by Frank Stapleton. Um, shortly afterwards, Tony Galvin uh, curls an effort just wide with his left foot, and coming towards half half time in the final ten minutes, um, a quick. Ray Houghton free kick. Uh, he he looks to find his his club teammate uh, John Aldridge, and he Aldridge appears to be either grabbed or or, or struck by Gutierrez, uh, and the penalty is given straight away. And uh, I suppose given the the predilection to 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 violence that we 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 talked about earlier, so it's it's no huge surprise, but also not a um, not an overreaction from the referee either. Yeah, that's it. When I first saw that, that the penalty was given so quickly, I was like, that's, that's shocking quick from the ref. But as you said, um, they had a history of violence on this tour. And Aldridge went down pretty fast. It looked like he had taken a, a good hit to the face. Yeah, referee didn't seem to have any doubt. Um, I, I, I don't see the obvious kind of foul myself, but there wasn't much controversy about it afterwards. So, And I suppose typical of the time as well, um, it if it was indeed a punch in the face, um, it, it wasn't considered a, a, a capital offence. It wasn't the sort of thing that would see you uh, go off the field. Uh. Well, uh, anyway, we, we we continue to the uh, to the penalty. Is a bit of um, Alves in the in the Uruguay goal. A bit a bit of um, a, a bit of dancing and a bit of uh, attempts to distract. But uh, Daly rolls the, rolls the penalty uh, the other side of the keeper, and it and it's one one with seven minutes to go until half time. Decent penalty as well. He was a very good penalty taker, Jerry Daly. Uruguayan goalkeeper Alves, I think he must be, he's one of your crew, Dave, in that he seems to be a big Rocky fan, because he seems to have, he seems to be, it's almost like a Rocky Halloween costume he has on, which is very out of place for an international goalkeeper. He's got what looks like, they look like sweatpants to me, and like a a grey hoodie. He also seems to be wearing runners, but I think that's just because his studs are sinking into the grass. Uh, so it, it, it works for him, I guess. And so shortly afterwards, it was half time. Decent first half, uh, all in all, few chances for Ireland. I think Jack probably has has no major cause for alarm at half time, and by all accounts, the the home base lads of of Murphy and O'Brien are doing very well. So, let's see how the second half progresses. Cool. So the second half, um, Ireland continued to to look good and push for a winner. Um, at fifty one minutes, Houghton stuck in a corner, headed down by Aldridge to McCarthy, laid back to O'Brien. And his shot was deflected just wide. That was his big chance uh, for a goal on his debut, the 21-year-old Rovers player. Um, he said later that he thought he had scored that one. 20 minutes into the second half then, excellent cross from Galvin from the left. And again, into the side netting this time from Aldridge. Then substitution on 67 minutes. John Byrne, who you mentioned, Turlock from QPR, came on for Frank Stapleton. He had a chance at around 72 minutes with a decent shot from outside the box. But that went wide. And then 10 minutes to go, we saw Eccles come in for Hewton. Presumably he went to left back, even though he's, he's more of a centre half. And that was it. No more chances, really. Ireland gave a decent account of themselves, uh, but ended one all. Yeah, and that would be the entirety of, of Peter Eccles' international career, those 10 minutes, which I don't know if it's still the shortest Irish career of all time, but it's... Um it's up there for sure. So decent result in Jack's second outing against the champions of, of South America. What was the reaction to that, John? Um, well, I, I honed in on Charlie Stewart in, in the Irish press. He didn't give Ireland a chance before the game. He predicted a three-goal victory um, for the 
Uruguayans and even actually before the game was played he signed off his article in the press with the honeymoon continues but how long will the patience of the fans last but yeah the the day after the game he was obviously impressed with the with the draw um everyone was impressed O'Brien and um Murphy put a very good of account to themselves the League of Ireland players O'Brien's center field was a revelation according to Charlie um and yeah Jack was delighted with the game and also said, yeah, that, that somebody should be snapping up O'Brien because Jack sure as hell didn't want to be watching him in Rovers games. He wanted to be watching him in England the next season, which he would be doing. Man of the match for Daly as well, who played centre midfield uh, with Liam O'Brien. He got the goal, of course, and he had a very storied career. Um, at that point, he was with Shrewsbury Town. He had been at Bowes, Manchester United, Derby County, New England T-Men. Coventry City, Leicester City, Birmingham City. He was at Shrewsbury then, and he went on to Stoke City, Doncaster Rovers, and Telford United. What a career! Absolutely, very actually very underrated um, player in Irish football history, and for a midfielder. And given that you know Ireland traditionally don't score that many goals, he, he got quite a few. Yeah, thirteen and forty-eight, and like many players at the time, went on to to player manage Telford for a few seasons before wrapping up management in nineteen ninety-three. Yeah, it's certainly, uh, I suppose, it's not an easy time to be an an Irish midfielder uh, either. There's obviously it's it's the days of four-four-two. You have you have Liam Brady in there. You have um, John Giles for so many years. You have Paul McGrath now becoming the next thing in midfield as well. It's not. It's not an easy position to make your own and certainly to make that sort of uh, of contribution, something you can look back on with a bit of pride. What will Jack be reading into this now? Is is there anything he's learned about the shape or personnel of, of the team? Or uh, is it, I guess, hard to be conclusive about a, about a fairly low-key friendly like this? It was a bit of a patchwork team, really, wasn't it? So um, I, I guess he was impressed with O'Brien, um, was the main kind of takeaway. Houghton and Aldridge definitely seem to be his men. Uh, he he bigged them up again after the game, saying that they'll they'll fight as hard as anyone for the jersey. It was uh, it was it was refreshing to see how honest Frank Stapleton was. He said after the match that it's not easy to watch football like that, uh, but you have to play to your strengths. And he also said that it augurs well for the future. I suppose you can certainly read uh, plenty into the into the, into the formation. It's it's very. Um very winger-based, two two strikers. The first opportunity to see uh, Frank Stapleton up front alongside alongside John Aldridge. Uh, I think Stapleton actually was already kind of on the on the way out of Manchester United, as in he'd already basically been given a a free transfer. Another pre-Bosman thing for for younger younger listeners. It didn't used to be the case that you could just leave when your contract was up. They would still retain your registration and demand a transfer fee in a lot of cases. But he will be moving on quite possibly to the continent. A lot of the speculation has it uh, in the months ahead should note as well that there are actually four bookings in the game but they were for such by all accounts trivial um offenses that they weren't really even mentioned in, in a lot of the the match reports um it was daly and o'brien the two central midfielders who were booked for ireland but jack doesn't seem to have held that against them he was effusive in his praise of liam o'brien as you said john uh kind of begging begging a, an english club to come in and and take him out of the out of the um, unpromising doldrums as he would have seen it of the League of Ireland. One of the things I find a bit heartbreaking about the response to this game is that everyone mentions how well Barry Murphy and Liam O'Brien and I guess in his 10 minutes Peter Eccles did League of Ireland players. They see that as maybe a sign that Jack is open to 
know the best of domestic football as well and that he's not going to turn his back on it um some people are going to be very disappointed over the next nine years i think that that's what i was kind of thinking when i when i read uh when i read back on on the praise that that jack lavished on on liam o'brien i'm not sure if it was so much that he that he actually thought he put in such a great performance uh, as much as he he very much recognised that he needed to go and step onto a higher level. The Belfast Telegraph made sure to kind of dampen uh, Jack's delight a li- little bit. In their report, they said that Uruguay's decision to rest many of the stars on whom their World Cup ambitions depend did nothing to lessen Charlton's pleasure at his players' performance. The other games going on around Europe that night, um, that Wednesday night, Northern Ireland struck late to beat uh, Morocco in a kind of World Cup warm-up game for the North. They were obviously heading to, to Mexico uh, for the second consecutive appearance at the World Cup. And um, Pat Jennings broke the world record for international caps in this game. Uh, he won his 116th international cap against Morocco, which was some going in those days because there, there weren't half as many internationals as, as there are today. He'd been around for a long time. Um, also a high-profile game for what was called the Rouse Cup, after Sir Stanley Rouse, uh, between England and Scotland. This was after the home international series had been discontinued in, I think, 84. But England and Scotland did kind of organise fixtures against one another for a few years afterwards. Um, And England, obviously both teams going to the World Cup, England came out on top at Wembley with goals by Butcher and Hoddle for the English. Okay, so that's it for this second episode of, of Back to Jack. A 1-1 draw with Uruguay. Things kind of tentatively falling into place uh, for the new regime of Jack Charlton and Morris Setters and whoever his mystery man on the inside is. We are generally going to cover one match per episode, but for the next episode, you'll be hearing about, well, the entire tournament's worth of football. The triangular tournament in Reykjavik between Ireland, Iceland and Czechoslovakia. Ireland's games in that tournament were two days apart, so we're going to cover that as a single episode. Uh, Although the FAI have also turned down a proposed friendly in Iraq for allegedly logistical reasons. Um, There was quite the traffic between Ireland and Iraq uh, for other less savoury reasons at this, well, quite savoury reasons in terms of beef um, at this time, but um, I'm sure... Uh, but I'm sure we'll come on to that in a subsequent episode. We better have a new number one by that point, Turlock. Can't still be the young ones. I, I have a premonition that it may well be the song with some of the worst bilingual lyrics of all time. Er war superstar, er war populaire, er war so exaltiert because er hatte flair. <laughs> Which, you know, if this if that's what European integration looks like, let's see how it plays out over, over the next 30 years. But yeah, we're going to be back very shortly with the next episode of Back to Jack. And we'll see you then. Take care. And up yours as well.